Uh, so we come this Lord's Day to the fourth and final lesson in our series on the Lord's Table. Last Lord's Day, we spoke of how when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He made clear that the bread represents His body that was cruelly slain as a sacrifice for His people's sin, and the wine represents His blood shed to execute the new covenant promise by which God remembers His people's sins against them no more. The Lord Jesus often spoke in metaphors that the people misconstrued. In John 6, Jesus spoke in a sustained metaphor of eating His flesh and drinking His blood, and some have constructed from that the monstrosity of transubstantiation. But God's Word makes it clear the bread and wine of the Lord's table are symbols and pictures of the Lord's body and blood used to recall His great offering to the minds of His people, the one that He made at Calvary as God's Lamb, slain to redeem poor sinners. In truth, only the actual body and blood of Jesus can save sinners. The last half of John 6 addresses these matters most clearly. Jesus is being chased after by people whom He had just fed miraculously with the five loaves and the two fishes. They weren't so interested in Christ's doctrine as in making Him their King because He had the power to give them free food. Because Jesus told them that they must believe on Him, they then demanded that He show them a sign so that they might believe on Him. They circled back around to their previous suggestion that He provide them with free physical bread to eat like Moses had done. But Jesus corrected them. Moses didn't give you that bread. God did, just like God sent me down from heaven as the true bread of life. But they continued to insist that He give them actual bread to eat or they wouldn't believe. In John's Gospel, there are numerous spiritual metaphors used by Jesus which the listeners didn't understand. For example... There was the use of the phrase, destroy this temple, meaning the body of Christ. There was the phrase, being born again, which Nicodemus couldn't grasp. To the woman at the well, there was the promise of living water, which she took to mean she wouldn't have to draw any more actual water from the well, which would be a convenient thing. There was the spiritual blindness of John 9 compared to the physical blindness of the blind man whom Jesus healed. In John 10, there was Christ as the door unto salvation and His sheep who would hear His voice and had been given to Him by the Father. In John 11, there was the sleep by which Jesus meant the death of His friend Lazarus. So in John 6, Jesus identifies Himself as the bread of life by which He means he is the one who gives eternal life to whoever trusts in Him. He makes all this explicitly clear when He says, quote, Whosoever cometh and believeth on Me shall never hunger and never thirst. Close quote. Jesus then explains that everyone who comes to Him and believes on Him, He will raise up at the last day. Jesus is making it crystal clear that He's not referring to physically eating His flesh for nourishment but rather believing on Him unto salvation. He that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Christ then contrasts the physical bread from heaven 
the manna that God gave in olden times to the spiritual bread of life which He is. Those who ate the manna all died. Those who eat of the bread that comes down from heaven, the Lord Jesus, have everlasting life. Then Jesus begins to explain how He Himself saves His people by giving His flesh for the life of the world. This is a veiled reference to the death that Jesus would undergo. The bread of life dying to save His people from their sin. The people object. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus completes the spiritual metaphor. Just as life is sustained by eating physical bread, so everlasting life is obtained by spiritual eating of my flesh and my blood. This is an explanation of how Christ's body and blood operate upon all those who believe on Jesus unto everlasting life. It is not by a physical eating, but by believing on Jesus unto salvation. Just as we eat physical bread, literally, to live, so we eat of the body and blood of Christ, the bread of life spiritually and metaphorically to receive everlasting life. That eating of Christ is to believe on Him. All of this teaching by Jesus is an extended metaphor comparing physical bread to spiritual bread. And yet, Jesus is also teaching this, that His very own body and blood are central to the giving of everlasting life to His people who trust in Him, the slaughter of His body and the shedding of His blood on the cross, are the sacrifice by which He redeems us. Our everlasting life flows entirely from the offering up by Christ of His actual physical body and blood at Calvary. According to the metaphor of Christ as the bread of life, we feed upon His body and blood by faith. And His offering up of His actual body and blood is the source of our forgiveness and salvation. Christ answers the objection of the disciples that this is a hard saying by pointing out that He will ascend back up into heaven from whence He was sent. He points them back again to what He had been teaching using this spiritual metaphor. It is not by a physical act of eating His flesh and blood that men dead in sin are made alive forevermore. Rather, it is by His words, which are spirit and life, He said, being believed by His people, that eternal life comes to them. Jesus taught by the physical sacrifice of His body and His blood, all who trust in Him obtain everlasting life. At the Lord's table, Jesus gave us the symbols, physical bread and physical wine that portray the physical sacrifice He made for us as God's Lamb. So that by feeding upon Him spiritually, which is by believing on Him, we might have forgiveness of sin and salvation for all time. Now I wonder if you noticed. Probably didn't because I didn't notice it till I was writing up my notes last night. How the people demanded bread to eat. They wanted literal bread to eat so they wouldn't have to go get some themselves. Jesus had shown He could do that at the feeding of the 5,000. But Christ offered Himself as spiritual bread unto everlasting life. Not interested. Not interested in that. Give us actual physical bread to eat. 
they would not be distracted by promises of everlasting life, would they? You see how carnal they are? How they are the natural man that cannot receive the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. They wanted something, you see, for the here and now. But when in their unbelief they wrongly perceived Christ to be offering His physical flesh and blood to them as physical food, they rejected Him, didn't they? Too repulsive. This is a hard saying, they said. Who can hear it? But you see, the difference is we joyfully feast upon the Lord Jesus' body and blood spiritually and partake of these symbols to remind us of what Jesus did for us on the cross and to acknowledge publicly that His literal, physical body slain and bloodshed is all our hope and life and joy forever. That's what it means when it says, "Ye shall show the death of the Savior till He comes. Now in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is rebuking the church. Well, he's rebuking the church for a bunch of different things. They had a lot of problems. They had a lot of divisions. They had some heresies. They had disorder in the worship service. And in the second half of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is rebuking the church there for overthrowing the very meaning of the Lord's Supper. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17. Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not. I think it's funny the way he circumlocutes around this. Now let me condemn you for what you've been doing. It would be a more straightforward way to put it. But Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there will be divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, you see, Paul is rebuking them for this disorder in the church and the divisions that are in the church, which he partly believes, he said, that had been reported to him from afar. Do you remember he had founded the Corinthian church to begin with? And he had taught them carefully. But the church there, you see, was overthrowing something that was very important. Later on, you see in the, in the text, he will describe one of the divisions that display the sin and the misconduct of the believers in the church. And that's why, in one sense, it's a good thing that they had these divisions because it opened them up for valid criticism and for valid calls to repentance and reformation. Now, verse 20 is very interesting because it says, when ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's what they thought they were doing was celebrating the Lord's Supper. He's not saying, now I'm not talking about when you come together to have the Lord's, I'm talking about something else here. No, because the whole context that comes later is he is talking about celebrating the Lord's Supper. But what he's saying here is, 
You may intend to celebrate the Lord's table, but what you are doing actually is not celebrating the Lord's table. You've replaced a true and valid celebration of the Lord's table with something malignant, something wrong that needs to be corrected. What you're doing is very different and very wrong from the way the Lord's table ought to be celebrated. Look at verse 21. He says, For in eating everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Everyone is bringing their own dinner and eating it there together, but really not together. They're starting to eat before everybody else is there. And not only that, they're not sharing a supper. They may all be eating supper in the same room, but they're not really sharing, are they? You see, they're actually bringing their own stuff to eat and other people who come who don't have anything to eat are just sitting there waiting on them to finish, pigging out, if you will, on their own food. And so some people are hungry because they couldn't bring anything. Perhaps they're too poor. Perhaps this is a sign that there are people who are well-to-do. And then there are other people. Some of them are free men, so they can bring food to eat. Others are slaves, and you know they can't just haul off and go to church and take food with them. They probably were provided their meals where they worked, and it would be improper for them to do takeout from there and take it to the church to eat it. And they may not have had the, the flexibility or the ability or whatever to bring a meal on their own. Maybe they were just too poor. Maybe they had such simple food at home that they were ashamed to bring it. To have others see how impoverished they were. But be that as it may, they're not eating this dinner in any form of solidarity, unity, community. You see, these people were worse off than churches that have dinners on the ground and everybody comes to that service because they want to eat. There's nothing wrong with dinners on the ground. If that's the only reason you came was for the food and not to worship the Lord and remember the offering of Jesus, then you've supplanted the real purpose of meeting as a church. Now, if you're meeting as a church and you're actually obeying the ordinances of Christ and celebrating the Lord's Supper properly, and there's nothing wrong with also having a dinner on the ground. But be careful that you don't start coming to the church so you can eat at the dinner on the ground and not so that you can sing praises and worship and hear God's Word preached and have joy in your heart for what the Lord Jesus did when He saved you. But notice this confusion that's already been brought to the surface by Paul's rebuke here. You see, the confusion between the physical eating and the spiritual feasting on Christ. You see, they have commingled a celebration feast that is not primarily a feed my body, but rather it's a spiritual feast that is celebrated with physical symbols, the bread and the wine. I'm sure that the disciples would not have liked it if the Passover meal had consisted only of the bread and the wine that Jesus offered them at the end of the meal. You see, they were there to celebrate the Passover. 
Christ ordained the replacement celebration, which is a spiritual celebration. That's why we don't have huge loaves of bread with butter and coffee and cream and sugar and big goblets of wine and so forth at the Lord's table. It's not a physical feast. It is a memorial that prompts our hearts to spiritual feasting upon Christ. But you see, these people had converted the Lord's Supper into just a physical feasting and eating in the presence of others, but not in union, in community, and completely confusing the purpose of the Lord's table with the purpose of just eating and drinking. It wasn't a potluck, you see, but rather it was an exclusionary meal. Some feasted, some are left out because of their poverty. In verse 22, he says, What have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. There is a selfishness. There is a self-gratification. There is a leaving out of the brethren and sisters who are more needy and more poor. And here all of this is happening in the context of supposedly worshiping Christ and remembering His supper. How easy it is to convert the spiritual feast of the Lord's table into something that it is not and in the process lose the whole point of what Jesus had His people, told His people to celebrate. Now there's nothing wrong with dinner on the ground so long as nobody is excluded and the unity and love of Christ's people is on full display. But that is not to be confused with celebrating the Lord's Supper. But even that is not the Lord's table, you see. The Lord's table is a spiritual feast on Christ. And then look at what Paul then says. He reminds them of what he has already taught them previously. For I have received, verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. Now notice that Paul says he learned this from Jesus Himself. And there is in the book of Acts and in other places references to Paul's communion with Christ and visions that he had at the start of his ministry in which he received the Gospel from the Lord Jesus Himself, not from the other disciples or apostles. This is one of the reasons that he is known as the Apostle Paul because he had what he taught directly from the Lord Jesus even though the Lord Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven before Paul had believed on Him. But Paul heard it from Jesus and had told them all of this, the Corinthians that is. He had already described it to them. But notice he says, the night he was betrayed, the last meal that the Lord Jesus would eat before He went to the cross, at the tail end of the Passover feast they were celebrating in order to impress upon His people that last day, that last night before He went to the cross, to impress upon His people the solemn act He would very shortly complete because in His very body and blood He would become our Passover lamb. 
Do you remember they partook the Passover to celebrate and remember the first Passover when Jesus' disciples slew the lamb for the Passover feast? It didn't have any saving power. It was a remembrance of the first Passover where the lamb was slain, and it was not to re-sacrifice that lamb and save them from Egypt, you see. They were already saved from Egypt, but rather it was to memorialize and celebrate that dark night when God rescued the people of Israel there through and by judgment of sin and the marks of the blood of the sacrifice that was substituted for themselves. You see, because the judgment of God passed through all the land, and all the people had sinned against God, not just the Egyptians, the Jews as well. In fact, you can see later on that they still had these practices of idolatry, worshiping pagan gods, that God repeatedly exhorted them to put away from themselves their idols and their false gods. So you see that there was a wash of God's judgment over the whole land. And the only people that were saved were the ones who had the sacrifice that pointed to Jesus and the blood of the sacrifice displayed on the doorpost so that the judging angel might pass over the Lord's people who trusted in the promise He made that if you will display this blood of the sacrificed lamb, I will pass over you and will not allow the death angel to come into your house. Just as subsequent celebrations of the Passover were not to re-sacrifice the Passover lamb, but rather to remind the people how God had one time saved His people from slavery in Egypt. And so that was the purpose of memorializing the Passover. And the Lord Jesus is now ordaining this spiritual feast to commemorate what He is about to do to save us all. And every time we partake of the Lord's table, we are remembering and celebrating how one day long ago the Lord Jesus became our sacrificial lamb to take away our sin, and by which we are saved unto the uttermost. Now, in verses 24 and 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see Paul's recitation of the language that we use when we celebrate the Lord's table. And when he had given thanks, that is Jesus, he broke the bread and said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now, this term remembrance, I don't believe is found in any of the gospel renditions of the Lord's table. But remember, this is what Jesus told Paul. And Paul has a revelation which he has included in Holy Writ that explains that Jesus told His disciples that this was to be done in remembrance of Him, in remembrance of His body that was sacrificed, in remembrance of His blood that was poured out. This is from Christ through Paul 
to the apostle personally. Jesus gave thanks. He gave thanks for the bread that pictured His body mutilated and slaughtered for us on the cross. He gave thanks for the cup that pictured the blood that He shed for the remission of our sin. He gave thanks for the awful sacrifice that He would make the very next day for His people. And so too, when we give thanks for the bread and we give thanks for the wine, we're giving thanks not so much for bread and wine. It's de minimis, isn't it? We're giving thanks for the body of Christ that was crucified for us and for the blood of Christ that was shed for forgiveness of our sin. It is as if Christ is saying, remember what I did to save you every time you eat and celebrate this Lord's table. Now, verse 26, this is Paul speaking now, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. Well, this word for show, I'm told, means to proclaim, to preach, to demonstrate pictorially, to announce. Now, I noticed that Dr. Peter Masters, the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where C.H. Spurgeon preached in the 19th century, he pointed out that this text could also be rendered as a commandment. For when ye eat this bread and drink this cup, preach the Lord's death till He come. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's what you ought to do. You're not eating and drinking at the church to fill your hungry bellies or to have a little social concourse with your fellow believers or to snub the poor people amongst you who couldn't afford to bring anything. No, you're supposed to be proclaiming the Lord's death. Proclaiming His death till He comes. So you see, you're supposed to be preaching the Lord's death till He comes. And if you're not partaking of the Lord's table with that frame of mind, with that purpose, then you are eating and drinking unworthily, as we shall see shortly. At verse 27 comes the warnings about people who abuse the Lord's Supper. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we would not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home. That ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. And notice he brings them back to the particular wrong that he was rebuking them for, which is that they're coming together to have the Lord's Supper, but they've messed it all up, turned it into just a regular common meal that insults the other believers and underlines the divisions and disorders in the congregation. And the solution to that is to stop bringing your supper to church, eat it at home, so that you can focus upon the spiritual feast, which is 
supposed to be the Lord's table. There is a warning against profanely or unworthily joining in the Lord's table for any other purpose, not for the purpose of celebrating the offering of Jesus to save us, and not to think upon, display, and preach the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for us on the cross. Oh, Brother Gill has some interesting things to say about this particular text. Now such are, that is, those who eat and drink unworthily of the body and blood of Christ at the Lord's table, such are all unregenerate persons. For they have no spiritual life in them and therefore cannot eat and drink in a spiritual sense. They have no spiritual light and therefore cannot discern the Lord's body. They have no spiritual taste and relish no spiritual hungerings and thirstings, nor any spiritual appetite, and can receive no spiritual nourishment or have any spiritual communion with Christ. So that's one category of people that ought not to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so they cannot by faith eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, nor perform the ordinance, that is, the Lord's table, in a way well-pleasing to God, nor have they any spiritual knowledge of Christ, and so cannot discern the Lord's body, nor any real love to Him, and therefore they are very improper persons to feed on a feast of love, nor can they affectionately remember Christ, and therefore must be unworthy receivers. Then he goes on. Indeed, no man is in himself worthy of such an ordinance, none but those whom Christ has made so by the implantation of His grace and the imputation of His righteousness, and whom Jesus, though unworthy in themselves, invites and encourages to come to this ordinance and to eat and drink abundantly. Moreover, this ordinance may be attended upon in an unworthy manner, as when it is partook of ignorantly, persons not knowing the nature, use, and design of it, or irreverently as it was by many of the Corinthians, and it is to be feared by many others who have not that reverence of the majesty of Christ in whose presence they are. Or without faith in the exercise of it on Christ, the bread of life and water of life, or unthankfully, when there is no grateful sense of the love of God in the gift of His Son, nor of the love of Christ in giving Himself an offering and a sacrifice for sin, or when this feast is kept with the leaven of malice and wickedness and with want of brotherly love, bearing an ill will to or hatred of any of the membership of the church. And then he goes on. This bread and cup are ate and drank unworthily when they are partook of to unworthy ends and purposes as to qualify for any secular employment. That's a slap at the Anglican church where people would all attend upon the communion so they could be counted worthy to be treated as citizens in the community and could be employed and respected and, and brought along as if they are with all the other people in the community and to gain any worldly advantage, or to be seen of men, and to be thought to be devotional and religious persons, or to commemorate anything besides Christ. Well, think of all the people that attend the Lord's Supper 
And they're just doing it for show. They're just doing it because everybody else does it. They're just doing it to gain some worldly advantage. They're not doing it to commemorate Christ. And then here's this, or to procure eternal life and happiness thereby, fancying that the participation of this ordinance gives a meekness for and a right to glory. Well, this, of course, is what the Roman Catholic system teaches that partaking of the communion service, they call it the Eucharist, that it has salvific effect upon the partakers thereof, that sins are remitted by participation in the Mass, they call it. This is another way to eat and drink unworthily, to not discern the body of Christ. Now, such unworthy eaters and drinkers are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Those who look upon the body and blood of Christ as common things and have no more account of them than of the body and blood of the Passover lamb or that eats and drinks unworthily may be said to be guilty of the body and blood of Christ inasmuch as he sins against and treats in an injurious manner an ordinance which is a symbol and representation of these true things. For what reflects dishonor upon the Lord's table reflects dishonor on the body and blood of Christ signified therein. So if you summarize what Brother Gill has said, if you're not saved, if you're not trusted in Jesus, then you don't need to partake of this feast. If you are trusting in your own power and ability and goodness, so-called, you're not to partake of this feast. You see, you're not celebrating. Christ's body and blood as life, salvation. You're not celebrating it as those things. You're celebrating something else if you're trusting in your own goodness. If you're not relying solely upon the body and blood of Jesus, sacrifice physically on the cross, take away your sins and redeem you unto God, then you ought not to participate in the Lord's table then you dare not partake of this feast. You just need to sit and watch. And if you are keen for a dinner on the ground or to look good before others, you ought not to partake of the Lord's table. Now in verse 28, Paul then says this, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So we're to consider whether we comprehend what the Lord's table signifies and whether we are joining in celebrating Christ's body and blood shed for us to save us or whether we are just daydreaming or thinking of other things or we're to examine ourselves. We're to focus, you see, on the true meaning of this celebration. And we're to assure ourselves that we do believe, that we do trust, that we have trusted in Jesus, that we will trust in Jesus, that His body and blood broken and shed for us is our only hope. It's our all our stay. It's what we've laid hold of and letting go of everything else. We're to examine ourselves and then it says, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So the examination, you see, will be something that hopefully confirms us in our understanding 
in our purpose and in our love for Jesus. If we will avoid these errors, we won't be judged, Paul then goes on to say. But if the Lord has to judge us with sickness and death, Paul suggests, that is chastening not for condemnation as it is for the lost. So if the Corinthians or if the believers in any congregation will persist in abusing the Lord's table, misusing the Lord's table, not comprehending what the Lord's table signifies, not celebrating the body and blood of Christ offered as a sacrifice in the place of the penitent sinner, then there will be chastening by the Lord. He will judge His people not into condemnation, but perhaps unto death. The error of not discerning the Lord's body, which Paul mentions, some people think it refers to their failure to act in unity, in the unity of Christ's body, as described by Paul's discussion of their feasting and the division that it caused between those who had and those who had not. Other people think it refers to not partaking with knowledge and joy and worship for the body and blood of Jesus pictured in the symbols. Now, Brother Gill takes the latter interpretation and he says this, this is an instance of their eating and drinking unworthily and a reason why they eat and drink condemnation to themselves, chastisement or punishment, because they distinguish not the Lord's Supper from an ordinary and common meal, but confound them together. They discern not the body of Christ and distinguish it from the bread, sign or symbol of it, or discern not the dignity, excellency, and usefulness of Christ's body as broken and offered for us, in which He bore our sins on the tree and made satisfaction for them, a commemoration of which is made in this ordinance. So if you do not understand that these symbols point us to, represent to us the real body and the real blood of Jesus offered for our salvation, then you will be eating of the bread and the wine unworthily. So we must partake of this bread and wine with an understanding of what it memorializes and therefore with great joy and delight in our Savior, in our Lord Jesus. Reminded of the words of that hymn that we love to sing. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Oh, Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher and he also wrote a number of hymns. And only one of the hymns seems to have survived in present-day usage. Somebody said of Charles Spurgeon's hymns that as a hymn writer, he was a great preacher, <laughs> but that some of his hymns were no good. Uh, but this hymn is particularly precious to us, isn't it? Amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view His pierced hands, points to the wounded feet inside blessed emblems, of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board when at His table sits the Lord? The wine how rich, the bread how sweet, 
when Jesus deigns the guests to meet? If now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs but see not Him, oh, may His love the scales displace and bid us see Him face to face. Thou glorious Bridegroom of our hearts, Thy present smile a heaven imparts. Oh, lift the veil, if veil there be, let every saint Thy glory see. And so we come to the Lord's table. And I'd ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took the bread and blessed it and broke it and said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus that He shed to make atonement for us on the cross. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son whom You sent to be Your Lamb to be slain to take away our sin. And who we have, all of us who've trusted in Him, we have laid hold of Him as our sacrifice that He might shed His blood for each of us, that He might shed His blood for me and for each of His people who've called upon Him. And we thank You that He did so and that His blood made a perfect offering for our sin, that You have accepted it unto the forgiveness of our sin, that you see in that blood the punishment for our crimes that were paid by Your dear Son on the cross. And we thank You for the symbol that He left us to remind us of it and how it fills our hearts with joy and thanksgiving at what the Savior did for us when He shed His blood on the cross to set us free. We thank You for this celebration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 488 in the big blue book. Philip P. Bliss's glorious hymn, I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With His blood He purchased me. On the cross He sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. 488.